Thanks, everyone. Let's get the session underway. So you're in the alternative conceptions of economic session. Welcome, everybody. First of all, let's acknowledge that we're on Ngunnawal country. My name is Rod Goodbun. I'm the Director of Policy and Operations in the Leader's Office. So I work for, for Richard. Um, and welcome today. We've got two wonderful speakers, Anna Schlonke and John Hawkins. We heard this morning um, uh, Mary Graham talking to us about the savagery of capitalism. We, I was in a session where we uh, uh, talked about uh, the takeover of public good research by commercial interests or corporate interests. Um, there was discussion about the Anthropocene or the Capitalocene early this, this morning. So this session is an opportunity to talk about alternatives to some of those ways of thinking. Um, and first of all, we'll have Anna Schlunke talking about transitioning to a steady state economy. And then John, uh, who will talk to us, John Hawkins will talk to us about uh, uh, measuring social progress different ways of thinking uh, and measuring or measuring and, and thinking. I'm not sure what, a, what order you do that in, um, and that's, that might be important. Um, but Anna is uh, a chemical engineer with a PhD in reaction kinetics, uh, co-director of the New South Wales chapter of the Centre for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy, and also co-director of Panania Free Ranges, which runs urban farms to improve access to locally grown food. So please welcome Anna. Okay, so um, CASIE stands for Centre for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy and I'm one co-director co of the New South Wales chapter. The other co-director is Hayden Washington and he was the editor of this book on how to transition to a steady state economy and I'll get back to that later. Um, there's chapters all around Australia. Well, there's Canberra, Brisbane, um, Northern Rivers and a new one in Victoria. So if you come from anywhere near a chapter and you're interested, you could probably contact me or go to the website to find out. So what underlies the steady state economy is the realisation that Earth is finite and, and this means that the size of the economy cannot grow forever. Um, so next time people decide to vote against business as usual, I'd like them to have something better to vote for and that's why I'm talking about the steady state economy as an alternative that can actually deliver a better life. So this is the sort of thing you'd probably see in sort of standard economics textbooks. There's circular diagrams, consumption, production, consumption, production. Um, they don't take na nature into account um, as if the economy can just spin on forever, making more goods and services um, faster and faster forever and trying to make us all happy with exponential GDP charts. Um, but really, as the economy grows, it requires more resources and discharges more waste. So there's a fundamental conflict between economic growth and environmental protection. As the economy has grown, the environment has become increasingly degraded and we're now well into a state of ecological overshoot. Um, but even though it's fairly obvious that we can't continue to expand our use of resources forever or even for much longer, most political and business leaders have been busy worrying about how to keep the economy growing. Um, just to note that economic growth means the economy is getting bigger. It doesn't mean it's getting better. And GDP doesn't separate the cost of growth from the benefits. Um, and as a comparison, the genuine progress indicator 
which broadens GDP accounting and includes um, the economic contributions made by families and communities, the natural environment and along with conventionally measured production, has been in decline in Australia since the 1970s. So instead, um, ecological economics accepts that the economy exists within society and the society exists because of nature. We depend on natural resources, land, air, water, sun and other ecosystem services that we mostly hardly think about. The steady state economy is one ecological economics model but beware that there are others and they don't all accept ecological limits and not, or not entirely. And I'll, I'll talk about the others later if I've got time. So the steady state economy, that's a picture of Herman Daly, who's the father of the steady state economy. A steady state economy has a constant or mildly fluctuating population and constant or mildly fluctuating per capita consumption. So the energy and material flows are reduced and kept within ecological limits and there are constant stocks of natural and human-built capital. And this is done by following four rules. So we maintain the health of ecosystems and the life support systems that they provide. We extract renewable resources like fish and timber at a rate no faster than they can be regenerated. We consume non-renewable resources like minerals at a rate no faster than they can be replaced by the discovery of renewable substitutes. Deposit waste into the environment at a rate no faster than that they can be safely assimilated. So taking all that, it means that the steady state economy runs on renewable energy. Um, and rather than aiming for growth, aims would be sustainable size, a fair distribution of wealth where there are limits to inequality, efficient use of resources, so reuse, recycling, but also using circular processes instead of linear ones, and most, most important perhaps is a high quality of life. So I'm just going to compare um, the ideologies of what we've got now, the dominant, I'd call it neoclassical neoliberalism, I, I suppose... Um, there's more than one definition of neoliberalism, but I'm talking about the belief in sustained economic growth as the means to achieve human progress, confidence in free markets as the most efficient allocation of resources, minimal state intervention in economics and social affairs, and commitment to the freedom of trade and capital. So first, the economy. Um, the overall aim, economic growth. So under our current... Um, regime. Economic growth is necessary for stability and it's used as a proxy for imp improving well-being. But in the steady state economy, the aim is sustainability and stability. So a constant size, not growth. And the steady state economy recognises and accepts that there are limits to the size of the economy. For nature, so what happens now is that the aim of protecting nature conflicts with the aim of economic growth and nature loses. This conflict's removed in the steady state economy because the growth imperative's removed. The value of nature is recognised and nature's cared for by restricting what we take from it as well as working to fix up the damage we've already done. And ethics... So in a steady state economy, we recognise that we rely on nature and we're part of nature. Also, um, cooperation is recognised as superior to individualism um, when it comes to maximising well-being. 
And this contrasts with the anthropocentric view of neoliberalism, where nature has no value except when it's of use to us. Um, inequality, we limit inequality in a steady state economy, and it's necessary to share better, um, to improve the well-being of the worst off, because we're not growing the pie, but also because more equal societies have higher measure, measures of well-being in general. Uh, this contrasts with the idea that people should be able to take as much as they can because if they get it, they deserve it, even when it's just by luck or by behaving badly. Um, measures of progress, and I think we'll hear more of this in the next talk, but um, in a steady state economy, instead of watching GDP in the markets with the assumption that well-being follows their fortunes, uh, well-being, natural capital and stability would be the measures of progress. Um, in a steady state economy, it doesn't rule out the use of markets, but they'd be regulated in the interests of people and the planet in line with the aims of limiting throughput and limiting inequality. And this would be different to the free market aims of neoliberalism. Democracy, it's important to improve democracy in the steady state economy. So we suggest that there's no political donations and we make more use of deliberative democracy um, so this contrasts, obviously, to where elections are influenced by money. Efficiency. So in the steady-state economy, we are worried about efficiency in terms of re resources. So rather than efficiency of the use of money. Um, this would probably mean things like we wouldn't transport things around as much. Things would be, there'd be greater localisation. Um, we might switch to more labour-intensive um, processes to, in order to reduce the use of natural resources. Um, but there's probably plenty of innovations. If we change the need to... If we, if we introduce the need to get the most from resources, then we'll probably come up with clever ways for designing out waste, reusing, extending lifetimes. And I expect that quality would become a lot more important. So overall, the steady-state economy removes um, the aim of more money from all of these areas, um, which is necessary to allow us to actually achieve the things that we need for a successful, enduring society on Earth. So, as I mentioned before, this year we published a book, um, Positive Steps to a Steady State Economy. I'm going to go through um, some of the steps. Okay. So, there's a lot of steps... Um, involved in having a sustainably sized economy and I'll go through some of them. So the main thing is in a steady state economy we live within our ecological means and in a rich country like Australia um, we'd need degrowth in resource use and waste production until the economy was a sustainable size. So it's still possible for some sectors of the economy to grow but the throughput of the economy wouldn't grow in the aggregate. Um, to be sustainable and equitable, so leaving some room for people in poorer countries to be lifted out of poverty. Uh, we should reduce our material and energy use and a starting point suggested is a factor of five reduction, which is 80% 80, 80 reduction. And uh, sometimes people are a bit shocked by that, but I don't think it's that difficult if you look into it. It's, uh, I think if People suggest we should even go higher, but we're suggesting a starting point factor of five. 
Um, so we'd have to control resource use. Um, we'd have to make sure that our non-renewables are phased out and renewables aren't used any faster than they can be regenerated. And reserve room for nature. There's a um, campaign, Nature Needs Half, so that sounds like a reasonable idea for a steady state economy. So some more steps. Um, tax shifting and subsidy shifting, obviously, so we're discouraging the unsustainable things and encouraging the sustainable. Uh, sustainability tariff structure, because we're not if we were to implement a steady state economy in Australia, um, we'd need to um, even out the prices so that unsustainably produced products couldn't Im be imported and um, outcompete the sustainably produced ones, the local ones, um, and focusing on producing what we can as locally as possible. Uh, worldwide detection of tax avoidance and evasion. So that's important for sustainable size of the economy, but also later for um, reducing inequality so that poorer countries aren't being exploited. Shifting investment, so divestment from the things that aren't sustainable, investment in things that are good for green jobs and 100% renewable energy. Um, and to track, as well as the tracking the stocks of natural resources and the health of ecosystems, we... Um, we could use those as a measure of progress. So it could be part of an indicator or they could be indicators in a set of indicators. So this is something that probably one of the least popular aspects of the talk, but um, decoupling. So um, a lot of people will say that we can just decouple and keep growing the economy. What I just want to talk about is what that means. And um, so... The throughput, the size of the economy, is not necessarily equal to GDP because the GDP is the dollar value of the economic production within the country. Um, but the throughput is the amount of resources and waste, resources use, waste produced. So if we had constant throughput, um, there is potential for GDP to grow. If we could... Um, Grow, if we could produce more goods and services from the same amount of um, resources or high-value ones. But it's not the aim in the steady-state economy and it wouldn't have to be – it wouldn't be necessary. So in the past, there's been a decrease in the amount of natural resources uh, required to produce a dollar of economic output, but it's been overwhelmed by GDP and population growth. So – um, global resource extraction um, grew by almost 80% between 1980 and 2008, even though you used 20% less um, resources per dollar. Um, so what we say is decoupling is only part of the solution and it needs to be part of a comprehensive move to an overall sustainable system. Um, we need a paradigm shift rather than wishful thinking about decoupling because on its own decoupling becomes a damage limitation approach and it has the unfortunate it has it unfortunately has the effect of assisting the people who want to continue with economic and population growth uh, like a license to keep growing and so instead we need to um, 
for that paradigm shift, we need to f- shift. We need to focus on things like reversing consumerism and changing our worldview and our ethics. This is another unpopular one, but a stable population is a necessary component of a steady state economy. If we maintain st- maintaining constant throughput, and we have a growing population, so then we would have to have a, a ever declining per capita resource use. Um, So I guess the first thing here is accepting that we need positive policies to reach a responsible and ecologically sustainable population figure Um, because people suggest we're already beyond what's sustainable for Australia, something between 15 million maybe up to 23. Um, So what that would mean is reducing net overseas immigration to around 70,000 per year, which I think it wasn't all that long ago that it was only that figure anyway, and um, not having not not reintroducing incentives to have more children. On a world scale, we need to decrease the birth rate. But this is there's there's two chapters in this book on population, and they've got the list of the nine non-coercive strategies, um, such as access to contraception, family planning, guaranteeing secondary school education, and eradicating gender bias. So I'll go through some of the steps that come under the, um, well, in the area of limiting inequality. So as well as setting a minimum income, we could set a maximum income to start to limit the inequality. Um, As I said before, with um, protecting the size of the economy, we need to reform international tax domain to stop tax evasion and avoidance. Uh, support businesses that have motives other than profit above all else. Um, reduce the inequality of political influence by banning donations and investigate ways of making decisions more de- democratically, allowing citizens to, li- to deliberate, and vo- deliberate and vote rather than relying on elective representatives, perhaps. Um, another thing which comes under the next slide as well is the universal basic income. Oh, okay. Okay, so I've only got a couple of minutes left. If you want to know more about the steps, I could probably come back to them in question time. I'll just go to the financial system one's an important one because if we're removing the need to grow, we need to have an economy that's stable without growth. Um, so this is probably where we need the most input in this domain because there's so much debate over whether any of the things that people suggest we could do to stabilise the economy will actually work. For a while, people were saying 100% reserve banking, but more recently there's been modelling to say that having in charging interest and on uh, money and things doesn't actually have a growth imperative. Um, so the other things, maybe you've read Richard Heinberg's um, End of Growth. He talks about because we've got a debt bubble... We could reduce that through a partial amnesty or maybe producing um, debt-free currency. So I think I'm nearly out of time. Like I said before, I've got four copies of this book here if anyone's interested. It's available from lulu.com as well. Um, If you want to learn more, we had a a FENA conference in 2014 and the link there, the talks are still up there. Most of them were recorded. Um, that's our website. Um, 
yeah, and if you want to know anything or you want to join the chapter or find out about anything else, you can email me and all the information about Steady State around the world is at steadystate.org. Thank you. John Hawkins from the University of Canberra uh, has worked in the Reserve Bank of Australia, the Australian Treasury, Bank for International Settlements, and currently lectures in contemporary economic issues. He's been secretary to the Senate Economics Committee, so if you had that job this week, you would have been up to your neck in things, but so you're probably feeling a little bit more relaxed. Uh, and he's also been senior economic advisor to both Bob Brown and Christine Milne. So please welcome John Hawkins. Uh, thank you very much. Um, this is, uh, I'm, I'm presenting on behalf of three uh, people. Uh, Lance, uh, who unfortunately couldn't be here due to illness, but uh, Josta, who is uh, here with me now. And feel free to direct hard questions to him. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm talking about is how, how do we measure uh, progress, um, social progress in particular, so first, I guess, what, what do we mean by uh, social progress? Well, it's, it's standard of living in part. That's, that's part of it. I mean, we want to get people out of poverty. So increasing the sort of resources that people have, increasing people's incomes, uh, people's ability to spend, that, that's part of it. But um, it's more than that. It's more about we want, also want to improve people's quality of, of life. So we just don't want it to just be a, a, a very materialistic focus. We want, we want to improve the quality of life. And we also want progress that's sustainable. So we don't want to increase the, the well-being of this generation but at the expense of future generations. And also we want progress to be equitable, to be shared. So we don't just want a small elite to uh, have a lot more income. We want uh, well-being to be shared around uh, the community. Most commonly, when people talk about progress, about jobs and growth, what they have in mind is growth in GDP, gross uh, domestic product. And uh, GDP was developed essentially as a tool for macroeconomic management, for Keynesian macroeconomic management. And it's quite good for that. It's a good way of telling whether an economy is starting to overheat or whether the economy might be heading to recession. So whether a central bank should be putting its rates up or down, uh, whether the budget should be contractionary or expansionary. So for that purpose, GDP is uh, quite uh, fit to purpose. It's also a useful tool for forecasting tax revenues. So if you want to know how much GST the government's going to collect, then a measure of the sort of market transactions in an economy is an entirely appropriate measure. But unfortunately, uh, GDP has often been uh, misused for a purpose that it was never designed to. In fact, uh, Simon Kuznets, who was uh, one of the earliest developers of GDP, explicitly says it's not a measure of well-being. And so using it as a sort of overarching goal of policy is, is not appropriate. So if GDP is not a good uh, measure for our, our social progress, then uh, what might be better? And well, first, let's think about some of the things that make GDP not a, uh, 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 the best measure of uh, progress. So it's gross domestic product, and you could argue that one of its faults is it's gross, one of its faults is it's domestic, and one of its faults is that it's product. 
So it's gross in, in the sense that it doesn't allow for depreciation even of capital, uh, like business machinery and that sort, of, that sort of capital, let alone broader concepts of capital such as uh, natural capital or the, the social capital or, or human capital. It's also domestic, so it doesn't include income that you've generated overseas. That's probably less important from this point of view. And it's, it's product, so it's only sort of tangible things. So it's goods and services, but it's not uh, other things that make life worthwhile. And it's restricted to market transactions. So for a point of view of telling whether or not an economy is overheating or predicting GST collections, that's entirely appropriate. But it means that uh, childcare that's paid for, for example, is included in GDP. Uh, childcare undertaken by the parents is not included in GDP because that's not a market transaction. And there was a very good speech Bobby Kennedy made in, in 1968 uh, on this topic. And I, I sort of toyed with it, uh, including it in the presentation. But I thought it would just make my own uh, abilities as a speaker seem even poorer. So <laughs> I decided against it. But there's um, an excerpt from it, and it's on, it's on uh, YouTube, if you're in a Bobby Kennedy GNP speech. And he, he probably overdoes it slightly, but he, he is, is making the point that there's a, a valid point, that there's a lot of things that we value that don't get into the measure of GDP. And, and hence, GDP is not something that should be the, the overarching aim of a, uh, a government. So then what, what, what can we do? Well, essentially two things, I suppose. We can either find a better measure of progress or uh, just say, well, we're not going to play that game at all. Uh, we could say that um, improving society, social progress isn't a, isn't a race. Uh, it's not like a football game where we can only win by making them lose. That, uh, and so, so just walk away from the idea. But there's, there's two problems with that. First, I think measuring social progress is something that's worthwhile trying, trying to do. As, a, as voters, we, ha we have to decide every, every three years whether the government has been doing a good job and some sort of measure of whether society has progressed, that might be a, a valid input uh, to that. Looking for, uh, at an across-country sense, I think it is useful to look at uh, comparing, say, how the American style of capitalism compares with the uh, sort of more mixed economy style that uh, operates in Scandinavia. And one way of sort of assessing that is to actually compare uh, a better measure than GDP of, of how much um, well-being there is uh, for each person in those sort of two different ways of organising society. But I think the other reason is that if, if we don't suggest anything better, if we walk away from this challenge, then other people will keep using GDP and therefore be making policy mistakes because they're aiming at an inappropriate target. So there's a lot of alternatives in the literature uh, to uh, GDP as ways of measuring social progress or, or well-being, but I, I think they can be classified in essentially four, four types. So getting a direct subjective assessment of people, how they feel about their well-being, taking GDP as a starting point but then adjusting it, getting a, a dashboard of a number of indicators and a composite measure where you get an index that uh, weights different uh, aspects of progress. And so I'll be talking about each, each of those four uh, approaches in turn. So the... The, the first one is essentially you have an opinion poll and, and you ask people on a scale of 0 to 10, how, how happy are you? And OEC has looked at this and it actually sort of works uh, better than you might think. It, um, 
it does sort of predict has predictive power. It uh, does relate to variables that you think should influence whether people are happy or not. So healthier people tend to be happier and so on. Where it um, is not such a good indicator is that you you, you can't uh, reconstruct it for past years if you haven't done the surveys in past years. And also, I think it's a bit more doubtful in, in terms of international comparisons. Um, just think, for instance, of the, the sort of brashness of an American and the sort of reserve of an English person, how they may respond differently to a question about you know, how, how are you going, uh, let alone if you're trying to compare across countries with different languages. So you know, words like happiness don't translate to exactly the same thing in different languages. So I think for international comparisons, it's probably not uh, as useful an approach, but it might be one, one sort of component of, of broader approaches. So the, the second way that a lot of people have suggested that a, a measure of progress could be constructed is to use GDP as a starting point and, and then add some things to it and take away some things. So you could add some of those non-market activities, childcare done, done by parents, uh, value of other household work like cleaning, for example, child rearing and so on. You, you get into lots of questions about how to, to value that. So would you put a higher value on child rearing by a lawyer than by a cleaner on the grounds that the lawyer's opportunity cost is higher, that their salary is higher? Or would you, would you just say, well, how much would, we, would you be paying someone to look after the child? And that's the, how you, you value it. Value it. Similarly, as well as adding those non-market activities that uh, we value, you, t you could take out of GDP things that we, we think uh, are actually bads rather than goods. So undesirable uh, expenditure, um, tobacco, alcohol, military expenditure, junk food, prostitution and so on. And you can probably see immediately the problem here is getting uh, agreement on what things are, are, are bad. Within this room, there's probably a lot of disagreement about what things you'd, you'd, you'd take out. But if you move uh, beyond sort of a, a group of progressive thinkers, you'd get a lot more disagreement. So uh, if uh, David Levenham was here, for example, he'd probably object to taking out any of those on the grounds that it's people's decision to, to smoke and therefore they must get enjoyment from it and therefore it should be valued. So lots of room for disagreement there. The other common adjustment is a sort of a broader measure of depreciation. So not just uh, the fact that the capital stock, equipment and buildings might be uh, being reduced over time, but allow for the fact that uh, if GDP has been generated by running down the natural environment in an unsustainable way, then that should be a negative thing that comes off that GDP if we're trying to measure are we making ourselves better, better off. Similarly, human capital, education and health, for example, social capitals, community trust, the sort of bowling alone sort of books and so on have said that, that that's probably been eroded recently and if so, that should be being deducted from a measure of social progress. The environmental part of this uh, has actually been addressed by the, the Bureau of Statistics and other statistical agencies and they've developed environmental accounts that do try to measure these things about uh, uh, loss of biodiversity and loss of environmental amenity. And to their credit, the, the ABS was one of the world leaders in, in this um, area. And unfortunately, budget cuts of the ABS mean they've had to massively scale back their involvement in that sort of thing, but hopefully... 
hopefully there'll come a time when they'll revive their, their work on that. And when, when GDP has been adjusted this way, you get measures that are often given names like genuine progress indicator of measurable of sustainable welfare. But they're all essentially starting from a GDP framework and uh, adjusting. So here's one uh, example that the Australia Institute used to uh, put together. So it compares GDP per person and their genuine progress indicator. And it's sort of typical of what a lot of these exercises sort of end up with. Typically you find that uh, more things get taken out of GDP than added to it, so the genuine progress measure is, is lower than GDP. But also the, the typical pattern that almost all these studies end up with is that the genuine progress indicator grows a lot less than GDP. In some cases it will even, even be going down, which suggests that a lot of the, the GDP growth is, is unsustainable, that it's been at the expense of eroding uh, the environment or uh, eroding some other, something else that we value. So, but uh, advantages of using the adjusted GDP is that you can do comparisons across country and to the extent that you're using data that's already been uh, constructed, you can even push it back in time and get a historical run of data. So the third approach is what's known as the dashboard indicators. And that's based on the analogy that if you're driving, you're interested in how fast the car is going, you're interested in how much petrol you've got left, uh, you're interested in what distance you've travelled, but you wouldn't add those three numbers up because that wouldn't have any, any meaning. So the Bureau of Statistics uh, published an example along these lines called Measures of Australia's Progress, which presented... Uh, information on a whole range of aspects of progress but didn't attempt to add them up into a single number. Now, unfortunately, that's also been suspended due to uh, budget cuts. <laughs> yes. So this is an example of um, what the ABS published in the Measure of Australia's Progress. So they looked at aspects of society, economy, environment. And as I said, they, there's not an attempt to sort of add them up. Problem is that people just can't uh, resist uh, adding them up in a sense and and they'll implicitly give equal weight to them so someone will look at this and say okay we've got six green ticks and three red crosses so six things getting better only three things getting worse therefore we're doing well but of course that's that's assuming each of these things is of equal importance and that's not necessarily going to be the case so that's the sort of a weakness of that approach. Then the final uh, approach is some sort of composite index. So taking, maybe taking those components from that measures of Australian progress and then trying to apply weights to them that are sort of meaningful, that are giving more weight to the things that are more important and less weight to the things that are less important. And the best-known example of that is the UN's Human Development Index, and that com combines education, life expectancy, and real GDP. And Australia does very well at that, which is maybe why it's talked about in positive terms a lot in, uh, in Australia. And it also has the advantage that there's three data series that are sort of fairly un uncontroversial. In a, in a, almost everybody would say an improvement in life expectancy is a good thing and an improvement in education is a good thing. And they're data series that are readily available 
uh, over long time periods and across most countries. So um, an example, uh, this is a social progress indicator. And I'm not sure if you're going to be able to see that up the back, but this is a list of all the indicators uh, they use. And most of them uh, seem fairly sensible. There's some that I think are a little bit problematic uh, because of the way they've been constructed. So this one is the percentage of tertiary students enrolled in globally ranked universities. Uh, the problem with that is a country that has... 1% of their tertiary students in an elite university, sorry, 1% of their uh, population go to an elite university and the rest have nothing, would rank very well on that. A country where 10% of the population go to a, a very good university and another 10% go to a, an okay university, maybe a more vocationally oriented one that isn't globally ranked, well, they would be worse, even though they're educating a far larger number of the people. So the uh, the, the Dawkins initiative of uh, creating new universities would have led to a huge plunge in this indicator, for example, which is probably not right. Similarly, you could argue that gender parity in secondary uh, schools is, is not quite the right way of looking at it either because whilst I think most people would say that an increase in girls in school is a good thing, it's not obvious that a decrease in boys in school would be an equally good thing. And if... Uh, uh, the Taliban came in and closed down all schools, that would actually lead to a, a perfect score in this indicator. So, <laughs> so you need to be sort of careful about how you measure some of them. And also, clearly, you wouldn't want to give equal weights to all of these because I don't think we would regard mobile telephone subscriptions as being as important as child mortality, for example. Now, it's, it's a, a reasonable example of a wide range of indicators, and, but the challenge is finding ways of um, measuring them in a meaningful way and, and also, also sort of scaling them. So there was a, sort of an example recently, uh, where I think it was in Canada, where one of these sort of indexes became dominated by a very large increase in one variable, and which was a number of emails sent by politicians to their constituents. And I'm not <laughs> entirely convinced that should have even been there, but even if we assume it's a good thing, it's hard to imagine that that's the most important thing. But because it, it had increased by something like 200% and all the other variables were changing in much smaller amounts, it was sort of dominating. So you need to be careful on, the, on how you process statistics. But in, in principle if you could get some sort of agreement on what were the most important uh, statistics as that were measures of progress and you could combine them into an indicator, then you would be able to look both across countries and over time. So anyway, using this particular uh, indicator, this is what they uh, came up with as showing the difference in, in social progress across countries. And again, this is sort of representative of what a lot of these type of studies find. So the, the Scandinavian countries do tend to do well. And on, on broader social progress, Canada does better than the US. If we did it just on GDP per capita, the US would be ahead of Canada, for example. So as a, for the, the composite index, the challenge is finding, you know, how do you choose the weights? So essentially you're asking the question, how many dollars in extra income is worth the same as an extra year in life expectancy? Or how many extra children in school is worth an extra year of life expectancy? So 
One interesting way of proceeding that the OEC has done, uh, done with its Better Life Index is it provides all the, the sort of variables on its website and invites people to uh, give their own weights to it, depending, reflecting their own view about you know, what's important in life. And, and then it, it reports average responses to that. So you, you then get the average view of a very large number of people about what's important. So that seems, in a sense, a sort of democratic way of proceeding. And uh, I think one worthy of further investigation. So what, what then could we do? I, mean, I think for progressive people, it's important to discuss this issue. As I said, I think we should run away from the question of measuring progress and just leave GDP as the, the variable. And we should discuss the alternative approaches and uh, the, the advantages and disadvantages of them. And Yosta did some of this at the Global Greens meeting uh, earlier this year. And he's uh, set up a drop box where people who are interested in discussing these issues can uh, contribute papers and uh, discuss. So if you're interested in being part of that, please uh, take the chance to talk to him about that. After we sort of discuss this, hopefully we should be aiming to reach an agreement on what are the preferred approaches. And one step beyond that is if we're going with something like composite index, what variables do you think we think should be there? And maybe some thinking about either what the weights should be or the way the weights uh, uh, should be determined. And then once some sort of agreement is reached on this, lobby to have the preferred measure adopted as an alternative to GDP in uh, measuring social progress and leave GDP for the things it was designed for. Okay, thank you. So now we've got um, plenty of time for questions. Yep. Uh, yeah, uh, about half a year ago we had a meeting in Liverpool, the Global Greens, and it was attended by about 50 different countries, economists, and uh, from that we created this drop box and there's a lot of very interesting papers in there from uh, at least eight different countries. Uh, and uh, one very essential question that I think is not quite answered yet is what do we do about it? Do we propose alternatives like the GPI and compare that with GDP? So we try to adjust the GDP. Um, eventually, perhaps it would be very nice to scrap the GDP and have this other one, but we can't decide that, and I think it would be impossible. So we've got to do either have the alternative as well as GDP, and preferably agree on one alternative, um, social progress indicator, gender progress indicator, whatever, or perhaps adjust the GDP. So what are people's views on that? Um, I think he's making the same uh, question I, I put in my final slide. Yes. Um, I want to ask, in a way, a more fundamental question. A lot of what's being talked about is how GDP has got things in it that shouldn't be in it, misses things that should be added to it. But I want to ask a basic question about GDP itself, about the idea of uh, market prices reflecting in some way happiness, utility, subjective satisfaction. And I want to suggest here an, uh, an economic 
uh, theory, which I had not heard mentioned for many years, which I learned in my undergraduate years many, many years ago, which is the idea of declining marginal utility, which is that if you take something that's undoubtedly a part of GDP, a car, you buy a car for what satisfaction it gives you. But your second car gives you a lot less satisfaction than the first car did. And the third car is just a burden. You've got to find somewhere to, to keep it. Uh, and the same goes for pieces of bread, and the same goes for cakes, and the same goes for everything that gets measured in GDP. So maybe more fundamental is to ask about inequality, because it's inequality that changes the meaning of GDP per person uh, between different societies and different people. Those are criticisms of the misuse of, of GDP as an indicator of welfare, I think, rather than a, a criticism of GDP itself. Um, I think the way they put GDP together for the purposes it was designed for is sort of okay. On, on the question of declining marginal utility, I mean, I guess if, if society is finding uh, overall a decline in marginal utility, then that, that should reflect in, in prices starting to, to fall off. But if you're looking at society as a whole, Whilst the, um, using your example, the individual getting the third car, the third car isn't so much valued. It's a different question. You're looking at one person gets a car, how much do they value it? A second person gets a car, how much do they value it? And a third person gets a car, how much do they value it? And they may well be, the third person may well be valuing it as much as, as the first person did. People are living longer, retiring earlier. And one of the arguments for... Um, why we need continuing economic growth so workers today can pay for the pensions of old people today. And in turn, when they get old, the younger generation will pay for it. So we're on this treadmill where, we, where it is argued we need never-ending growth. So what's your strategy for a soft landing for retirees? Or is, is there a soft landing so we can go to a sustainable economy? I guess I think there's like two parts to that. Um, when we talk about needing, you know, a growing population to provide for the ageing population, there's a lady, Jane O'Sullivan, who's done some or spoken about this a bit and looking at the cost of looking after children as opposed to, you know, uh, ageing people. And, and you don't end up paying more when you have less children because you still have a burden of caring for people who aren't working. Uh, in terms of, um, I guess, what we're looking at is we're not going to... We're going to reach a point where the economy collapses without doing anything. So there's definitely things we need to do because we have too much debt and we're promising too much for the future. So, yes, that's that's an area where I don't think enough work has been done and there's just ideas out there. So we welcome... I mean, my last slide was that we want dialogue. It's not like we kind of tell everyone how it's going to be, but um, it's more about bringing putting that framework out there for the steady state economy because it brings together so many things that I think need to be done anyway, like that people might want to happen but put them in that sort of big picture so you can say rather than oh, I just want this bit, it'd be like this is the reason we need this part. It's part of something bigger and you can sort of see why you would do one or the other, one policy or the other.
And there is sort of a transition going on at the moment between that sort of uh, pension model of this generation pays for the previous generation's retirement to uh, a small superannuation model where you're responsible for for paying, saving and providing your own retirement income, which of course means that this generation is paying both for their own retirement and the previous generation. But um, so that that might be getting around that problem, and once it sort of settles down to a pattern of people saving over their lives to to make to be able to um, fund their own retirement, and the sort of pension being a, a safety net for the people who are unfortunate and aren't able to to save enough. Thank you. Um, I think it's really interesting that this conference is called um, you know everything is connected because it certainly is, and, and I think your your um, ideas mm. about what we need to do to move forward in getting to a stage where we have, I think we need structural changes in order to get the policies we want. Um, and I've been trying to think over some time, I guess, on what these incremental steps are that we need to take to get to where we have those structural changes and values changes so that we can implement more of the policies we need in all sorts of areas. And I think the ideas. Um, Anna that you put up about maximum income and also what's been talked about a lot with universal basic income are a part of that discussion, I think, of, of looking at those values and hopefully changing the, the discussion and the framework on that. And looking at GDP also and perhaps campaigning for a, a deduction of the costs of tobacco and smoking in car accidents, just as a couple of small examples, might be one incremental way of you know, making some structural changes there. I mean, other ones in other areas, which I think are important, are getting rid of corporate donations and also another area of completely used war powers reforms. But I think those sorts of things, um, if we could get some priority on, on addressing those, could make the structural changes and um, move the framework of discussion further. And I wonder just what you think of those. Um, I say what you've talked about, they're all like like we've got in the book, like steps to the steady state economy. So I guess one of the good things about having all of them together is you can see if, if there's an issue, because I think there's a lot of people in Australia who are already working on aspects of the steady state economy, but if you don't know what that is, you won't be able to say, you know, I'm heading towards a steady state economy. So all the things you mentioned are things that would put us closer to a steady state economy. So, yeah, all good steps on the way. Mark Carnell from South Australia. A very quick observation on the question. The observation is um, my uh, balloon was deflated somewhat when I started reading stories about the Bhutan Happiness Index and then I met some Bhutanese refugees and they <laughs> talked about 100,000 people being forced into refugee camps in Nepal. And it got me thinking that some people in our country would be happy if we were a more homogenous society and if we could just get rid of foreigners and things like that. That got me a bit spooked about how these indexes might work, but just leave that. My question is, what they, they come to us and say, you Greens, you're against economic growth, therefore you're against employment. Now, you know, we know that's rubbish. Um, and often I find myself having to um, pick little sectors of the economy to say, no, 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 you know, we need more teachers, we don't need more uranium miners, and, you know, you can, you can start picking jobs and sectors of the community that we think add to our wellbeing and ones that are a problem. So I think the throughput stuff is, is important because there are plenty of you know, fields of employment and occupations that tread a bit more lightly on the planet than, uh, than others do. But I'd be interested in strategies 
um, to just deal with that question, you're against economic growth, therefore um, you know, people equate it with employment and therefore you must be against jobs, therefore why should anyone ever vote for you? That's a good question. I had a whole slide on employment I didn't get to. <laughs> um, so I guess we'll start with, I don't know if you've um, read Peter Victor's Managing Without Growth. So he modelled the Canadian economy under lots of different scenarios with growth, without growth. And he found that you could um, you could have a successful economy that wasn't growing, that you don't need growth for jobs. I mean, it's the obvious thing of we chose when we increased productivity to keep the money instead of reducing working hours. And I know that it depends on who's in charge of the machines that takes the jobs and things, but that's a possibility if you reduce our working hours and share the jobs more evenly and I'm particularly a fan of making it possible for anyone in any job to have a part-time job because it tends to be that there's some fields where you can get a part-time job and others that you can't as well as the things like the universal basic income so that you don't have that pressure to need a, to need a job and you can go and find your own job because other things people do are worth it as well. That's something that's long puzzled me, me too, is it why um, for a long time as we became sort of more productive, we took a lot of the benefit of that in shorter working hours. So the working week went down from sort of 60 hours to, to uh, 40 hours. We had the eight-hour day justly celebrated, not everybody working on Saturdays and that was justly celebrated. But I don't know then why it's stuck at, at uh, a five-day, 40-hour, maybe 35-hour week and hasn't sort of kept going, going down. And that's, that's something that sort of puzzles me. And the other problem with a um, low output, like in, in a recession, is that the typical pattern is is if uh, the amount of work being done goes down by 2%, it's, it's 2% of people lose their jobs and everybody else stays working 40 hours. Whereas if, if it was everybody moves from working 40 hours to moving by 39 hours, then the sort of social consequence of that would be much, much less. So it's interesting, you know, is there any way... You, we can think of that would mean that uh, if the amount of uh, employment goes down, it's spread much more evenly rather than just being concentrated on some people who come unemployed and other people who keep working the same hours. Hi, um, I'm Roger. Um, yeah, of course, there's a lot in all this. Um, I, I maybe want to link a few things. That in, I might start with the idea that the GDP, which you're describing as a technical term, has broken loose from a technical term. And I think part of the reason why is because what it measures is market throughput and in a capitalist dominant society, capitalism wants to colonise all parts of life and and run it through the through the market. And I think that you know, related to what you were saying. So maybe in terms of retirement incomes, we'll have you know, there's the financial sustainability we have, but we have the same capacity to care for people in a different economic framework, possibly more, probably more in the way we're talking about. But it's a it's a big shift from the order uh, where we are now, but I think that's where we need to go. Um, and I'll just maybe jump over the other stuff I was in my head. Just study. So these are important analytical frames, but both of them are quite technocratic. I know in Europe they use the word conviviality, the degrowth movement. That's a fancy French Italian kind of vibe, I think. But um, I guess a language for steady state that that makes sense to broad people out there beyond the sort of technocratic analysis. I think that language needs to be there for me uh, to, to, to feel where it's going to go. 
Yeah, thanks for that. And and one of the other most common criticisms is the steady state economy, the name of it, and it is dominated sort of by academics. So we we welcome any input if you anyone who <laughs> has ideas about how to make it more accessible, they're very welcome to help. I suppose um you know Samuel Alexander's doing stuff on the voluntary simplicity, and he fits into the steady state economy because he's focusing on how to make people happy with that lifestyle. So, yeah, we can make use of that. Um, so the chapter on population's got the nine non-coercive strategies for, and that's in terms of, like, world world population because in Australia it's the birth rates below replacement. So although um, if we were going to drop down, aim to drop down um, to say 15 million, which people say is the, like the, perhaps what we need to be having for a sustainable Australia, then we would have to um, think more about reducing our birth rate. But yeah, on a worldwide um, scale, that's definitely one of the strategies. Um, and I think I was sort of saying, didn't mention that, but when I was talking about decoupling, so people have been partially decoupling but then we've just been doing more um, more efficiently but a lot more and we've um, swamped any gains we've made so that's the danger of just saying that we'll make things more efficient because we just do way more of them yeah I'm interested in this idea of the name of steady state because I fully agree with the, the mechanics of the details, the elements that you're proposing, the, what we need to get to. But I think we underestimate the power of narrative and the story that we're telling. And, and steady state, for me, implies flatlining. And, um, and, it, and as well as that, it, it doesn't appreciate that the growth desire is a growth, it is, you know, the aspiration that we have to be better off. Maybe not bigger, bigger is not necessarily better, but it comes from that aspiration. And the natural environment too is a dynamic system, it's not a steady state system. So so I I would much prefer hooking onto the narrative of the circular economy, where you know, which is getting quite a bit of momentum in Europe at the moment, and thinking of our natural environment in terms of circular systems of you know the water cycle, managing the water cycle, managing our food cycle planning for life cycles, and thinking more along that kind of narrative and building on the narrative of a shift from a linear to a circular economy. And you can build all those ideas, all the mechanics that you talk about, into a different narrative that already has momentum in the mainstream society and just just pull it over and use it as a, as a, as a story to, to be, you know, to draw people in, striving for zero waste rather than infinite growth, heading in the opposite direction. Yeah, so a circular economy is like a necessary part of the steady state economy, but it, it doesn't, um, it's not the whole picture because it doesn't stop the economy from growing. If we could be reusing everything, we could be reusing twice as much and we'd still, the, the economy could still grow. So I guess the key thing that the steady state economy says is that the economy is a stable, sustainable size and that's what's missing from the circular economy. I, I understand what you're saying about that. You can see it and that's it. – we're not against the circular economy but we're part of the steady state economy.
quick response just to think of steady state in terms of a d dynamic growth and degrowth, growth and degrowth, rather than flatlining. That, that's all I mean. Yeah. I think a lot of people in the community are a bit um, shocked at the idea of 80% reduction of material and energy use. And, and that's where we get kids sort of sending people back into the dark ages. I've heard some people talk about that this means a household continuing as much as perhaps they did in the 70s. What's your favourite way of describing what an Australian household life would be like with 80% reduction? Yeah, I've also heard that life in the 70s. And just, it's funny because, so my parents were born in the 40s and they haven't got miraculously more happy as they've had more and more stuff. So I... I think it's probably more relative, you know, if everyone went back to the 70s, we probably wouldn't feel much different, you know. Um, but um, um, so in when we did this book, I modelled um, what sustainable houses would be like, like, and so it wasn't... I mean, it was pushing the boundaries, but it was probably just best practice. It, it wasn't ridiculous. Going beyond 80% was tough, but it wasn't anything that... It's probably taking all the good things that people are doing and putting them in the one house. So it's not... It's it's doable. Going beyond is harder, but I think once you got to 80, you'd find new innovations and it would be much easier than you think. But if we use all renewable energy, isn't that okay? We still need to make the renewable energy and if we have minerals that are not renewable, we still have other limits to materials and, yeah. I'm going to stick in that autonomous zone over there for a little while. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, both of these are just very much international issues. So whatever we're thinking and doing right here really depends on what's happening overseas. So both on the city state and the, uh, the measures... What's happening overseas and how do we look at that? And is, it, is there any coordination amongst progressive thinkers to try to work out the best? Um, the answer would be yes. Uh, Yost has been part of it, the uh, Global Greens uh, Conference, and uh, also the the Bureau of Statistics. When they've worked on things like the environmental accounts, they were part of an international uh, uh, movement towards uh, developing sets of environmental accounts. But um, I absolutely agree with you. It is desirable that uh, if we're if, if international comparisons is one of the important things you want to do with a measure of well-being, then you want a measure that's more or less the same internationally. And, I mean, there was, GDP was, is essentially the same measure all around the world, and that's because there's been um, work by bodies like the IMF and the OECD to come up with a internationally agreed system of national accounts. So something similar could be done with an internationally agreed measure of social progress and well-being. I, I could add that OECD has got uh, working one uh, alternative measure, mm. and then um, other international organisations, uh, New Economic Foundation, for instance, could, could some as well. Mm. So that exists, but the climate in different countries hasn't really gone quite as far yet. And that's where we are working on that. I, I guess a similar thing, and there's chapters of Cassie all around the world, um, so we all sort of know each other and share things and work together, but, but in terms of getting enough, you know, power and influence to implement them, that hasn't happened yet. I just wanted to pose the question, to what extent can we 
preserve the idea of growth, this is sort of picking up something Steve said, what, to what extent we preserve the idea of growth in a context that's separate from GDP? Mm. And an obvious example, and I don't think it's completely unproblematic, it's one I'm very familiar with, so I'll say that there is productivity growth, which can be entirely separate from GDP growth. In other words, we can do things faster, better, cheaper and easier without necessarily doing more of them, consuming more of them, creating more deleterious effects. So there's a kind of growth there that's separate from GDP, as an example. So I'm just wondering whether we can kind of sift the, the two ideas apart there's something worth preserving that, that, that appeals to that idea that people have wanting to, things to get better and progress, um, but leaving GDP behind and leaving it in that specialist zone where it's useful. Yeah, so we would, in a steady state economy, have a measure of well-being, but it wouldn't be GDP. Um, so it could either be we roll all the measurements into one, but I think most people are a fan of a suite of measurements and you need to have a, success, a satisfactory result in all of them? I mean, productivity is an increase in sort of GDP per, per person um, or GDP per hour worked. And you, you, you could use that to either work the same amount and increase GDP, which is what we tend to be doing lately, or you could mean that you could work less and produce the same GDP. And as I was saying in answer to Mark's question, for, for a long while it, that, was, that was done. Um, uh, we didn't produce reduced production, but we reduced working hours from 60 hours a week to 40 hours a week. I suppose... The feedback I've had is from steady staters and some felt he was a bit too strong. Um, I was alarmist, I suppose, with the the population grim reaper kind of ad. Um, it's We haven't had enough feedback to say yet. Um, we haven't had a rush to join or anything. Um, <laughs> but we, yeah, I mean, Dick's been a supporter of the steady state economy Um if anyone ever needs help, he's there. So, But, yeah, he does have his own view on how things should be. <laughs> I think it's an unfortunate aspect of the media that you, you're far more likely to get reported if you say something extreme. So, um, maybe that's what sort of motivates him to say something much more sort of colourful and so on because that way we'll get attention than a more moderate, nuanced uh, version might. Um, something about this discussion both in relation to steady state, and I suppose it's partly the language as well, and also a data-driven approach around the GDP or any sort of measure that is sort of leaves me a little bit cold and, I, and then I feel a bit bad about thinking that because I'm thinking, oh, it's very important um, <laughs> to think about these things. But, that, but Judith Wright, actually one of our great poets, did very uh, famously say in the 1970s in one of her essays about science and the arts, that conservation with the world's greatest problems on its hands needed not only to um, refer to rational thought but also to emotion because emotion is what stirs people to action. So I think that is partly why the language is very important here and to balance this, the measures and the very sort of dryness about that go with that with some sort of emotional content. Um, the arts can do that very well sometimes. Also, I was, after this gentleman spoke, um, I was reminded that um, very famous social reformer uh, Jane Addams, in the early part of the last century, at the time of the First World War, made the comment that, um, what well, she said, peace is not merely the absence of war, it is the nurture of human life. She 
nurture. You said human life, but it could be changed to say nurture of life, I think it would be. And that sort of idea that that's a type of measure. I mean, we can measure every policy decision we make by whether this decision is a nurturing. It does nurture life. And that can be couched in very emotional and uh, that taps into our love and our empathy um, and our care for the environment um, very well. That's sort of idea. And so another idea for steady state is that does happen in nature is regeneration. We regenerate, we die and we renew. And as people die, the new babies come, we love them. And it's a cycle that we all very well understand and we nurture. And we want to nurture that. We do it in our families very well. We just haven't quite understood how to do it out there in the world. You had your hand up earlier. Yes, well, most, but I'm just how on earth do you make this transition from present, the absurd conventional wisdom that we have to the, the obvious sense of what's being presented today? For some reason, the politics of it seems very, very daunting to me. I think, I mean, that's why we wanted people to know what all the small steps are because everyone. Has has decisions to make in their life that, and some have more power than others, I suppose. But you can know which way you're going if you make a decision. And like, if you were an employer and you decided to let people reduce their working hours rather than increase their pay, I mean, you're heading towards a steady state economy. Um, just to know that there, there's all these little bits that make up the transition to a steady state economy. It's not just that we have to do it all at once. We'd be measuring throughput, so the physical volumes of things. So if you have constant throughput and you – so if you weren't extracting more resources but you were providing more services, then that wouldn't, that wouldn't be measured as an increase in the size of the economy. So if they really are not using more stuff, then they could happen more without increasing the, size, the physical size of the economy. Yeah, so we're not ruling out that the GDP could go up, but we wouldn't need it to. And it's not possible, as far as we've seen, to keep growing GDP without eventually increasing resource use. Yeah, so I guess um, we want to reduce inequality and limit the inequality. So I suppose... There's the two sides looking at reducing um, the difference in incomes is one and then the other redistribution. So, yes, we do, we do need both. Yeah, um, I'm just wondering if there's some parallels in the um, agricultural um, stuff where we used to talk about sustainable agriculture as the new thing and now people are saying, well, actually, that's really dumb. But what we want is regenerative agriculture, agriculture that restores the soil, restores nature to take over and be abundant and I, I am thinking that there is a way in which that kind of metaphor can be applied to social services. For example, if you do re reduce inequality, a lot of, I mean, Howard Wilkinson, is, you know, the spirit level has talked about how many of our diseases are based on, are about inequality. So if we re do reduce inequality, we will reduce disease. So in some way, this must be some way we can talk about it that's not just steady state. It's actually about, I think it is about regeneration. And, you know, I just think we've lost that bit. That's the abundant bit about moving to something different. Economy and happiness, steady state and happiness, yeah. I guess the one thing is to not lose, to not lose the limits part because once we lose that, it can be hijacked by anyone who wants a growth economy, yeah. yeah. I get that. It's about how you treat those two things together.
Yeah. Yeah, which is what you're saying. <laughs> okay, great contributions from everyone. Thank you very much. So um, uh, perhaps congratulate yourself, but also to John.